0: Welcome to The Uplift, the show that celebrates women leaders who lift each other. I'm Carol Shabrias, a higher ed executive on a mission to help women leaders restore joy and meaning to their daily work. After more than 25 years of serving colleges and universities, I am over higher ed's culture of busyness and burnout, especially for women leaders. Leadership churn is no joke and no wonder. Higher ed works us to exhaustion, leaving no space for the passion that drew us to it in the first place. And so many of us find ourselves caught in what can feel like a meaningless slog to a paycheck. From Quit Lit to the Great Resignation to the Great Reassessment, women are fleeing higher ed in search of joyful, integrated lives. And yet we know this work matters. The ways we shape young minds and prepare them to be intelligent and informed global citizens, that matters. So if you're a woman committed to higher ed and also seek joy and balance in your life, welcome. This podcast is for you. Hey there, welcome to episode five of The Uplift. Today's long and rambly title kind of reflects the episode content, Women's Leadership in the Wake of Dobbs, as ruminated on by one single person who speaks only for herself. So this episode is going to air on the 4th of July, 2022, and I'm not a particularly patriotic person in general, and I'm really not feeling much love for the State of the Union this week. But here goes. As with every episode in this podcast, I'm here speaking only for myself. This podcast is a personal endeavor, and my words and voice are solely my own. I'm also neither narcissistic nor naive enough to think I could ever even possibly speak for all women anyway. But given this current Supreme Court, I feel the imperative to speak up, especially since the conservative majority on the court has made it clear they're coming for a whole bunch of our rights. Rights that belong to folks, at least, who aren't straight white men. In today's episode, I'm meandering through my past as a student. I've been interested in the ways institutions around the country are responding to Dobbs, with everything from studied silence to vehement outrage. So I thought I would take a little time to look at the three institutions where I studied, where I would have been a college student affected by this decision. Three places where I myself was a vulnerable, low-income student with no family support because I wonder and worry about the students who are studying there now. In the wake of Dobbs, I've been interested in the ways people are using their voices to amplify institutional positions. I appreciate the way that sharing information and making it visible and accessible is a form of leadership. The most comprehensive effort I've seen is from an editor at the Chronicle of Higher Education who started a Twitter thread of all the institutional statements he's found, regardless of the position those statements take. It makes for kind of an interesting snapshot of U.S. higher ed today, and so I'll link to it in the show notes at the end of the episode. Reading through those statements got me thinking, though, about the Dobbs decision less as an administrator and more as a student For the record, I'm a feminist, and I am fully pro-choice. I've had an abortion, I've had three first-term miscarriages, two second-term premature deliveries, one loss of a twin, and two full-term deliveries. My last three pregnancies were considered high-risk and required careful monitoring, daily medication, and weekly checkups and injections from a visiting nurse. The miracle that I have living children at all is 100% due to the fact that I had access to a full range of reproductive health care. I'm really fortunate that I didn't need that care when I was an undergrad, but what if I had? And that's the question that sent me to look at my three alma maters and their response to Dobbs. Now, I am 100% the product of public education from kindergarten through PhD. I started my undergraduate work at the University of Utah I completed it at the University of Washington, and then I earned both my master's and doctoral degrees at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I believe that education is a public responsibility. We have a moral and an ethical obligation, as well as a national responsibility to educate our citizens, not just those with legal status as citizens, but every single person who lives here. Education is the basis of our functioning as a civil society. Education teaches us to see our way through competing and conflicting narratives. It teaches us to investigate ideas that challenge our hearts and our minds. And it ensures that we have an expansive mindset of all people as part of a living community with a vested interest in each other's well-being. Given that I believe all that, well, I'm both frustrated and intrigued by the ways leaders of state institutions operate alongside politicians. That looks like really hard work to me. And so I read these statements with a lot of sympathy for the hazards and collisions leaders of state universities face in a situation like this. But I was also genuinely curious to see how they would negotiate the complexities and frankly, the horrors of this moment. For starters, all three universities, each a respected R1, includes a medical school. In fact, the University of Utah is the only MD granting institution in the state and the only academic medical center in the Mountain West. All three of these schools, though, have a broad reach as institutions training healthcare professionals. So, not surprisingly, each institution posted a statement about the training of doctors in obstetrics and gynecology. I'll start with the University of Wisconsin-Madison because it's the most vague. They write that they, quote, will continue to provide outstanding, comprehensive obstetrics and gynecology residency training and will continue to advance health equity by identifying ways to support marginalized populations that are disproportionately affected by barriers to accessing reproductive health care, while continuing to meet all applicable legal requirements. They don't address the inherent tensions and contradictions of those positions, nor do they comment that it may not be possible to thoroughly train OBGYNs, fully care for marginalized populations, and obey the state law. As a Wisconsin resident, I'm sort of pissed off about this, not really loving the way state politics play out here. At the same time, I am really glad I'm not the person who had to write that med school statement, and I don't envy the difficulty that med school faces in figuring out how to proceed in ways that are compassionate, medically comprehensive, and also legal. I found myself more sympathetic to the University of Utah statement, which clarifies the link between the federal law, Utah law, And the med school's requirements as an accredited educational institution. They clearly state that both didactic and clinical training require learning about pregnancy termination and that the quote procedure used for pregnancy termination is the same one used in cases of late-term miscarriage and stillbirth and thus is part of training to be a competent obstetrician gynecologist. They don't indicate how they'll provide that training if the activities are illegal but at least they take a clear stand on the importance of a comprehensive education. In contrast to Utah and Wisconsin, the University of Washington, which is the only one of these schools located in a state that currently protects a woman's right to abortion, is exceptionally clear, specific, and compassionate. As both an alum and a woman, I'm grateful for their statement that, quote, in the wake of the Dobbs decision, UW Medicine leadership reaffirms our support for access to abortion care as part of a full continuum of reproductive health care services. They don't shy away from using the word abortion in their statement, and they actually ask and answer the question, what is UW Medicine's position on abortion services? They also go into detail about the implications for classroom and clinical training, as well as for telemedicine, when those activities cross state lines. Before I went looking for the statements these three schools were issuing, I hadn't really given any thought to their med schools. I had thought a lot about how Dobbs would affect patients and a little bit about how it would affect current practitioners, but honestly I hadn't thought at all about the future of medical training and what our country will look like if we don't train healthcare professionals in the full range of reproductive healthcare. It's easy enough not really pleasant but easy, to imagine a future where women have to travel across state lines to get the care they seek. I had pictured clinics dealing with backlogs and long waits due to patient demand, but I hadn't really stopped to consider that if Dobbs stands, we will surely have fewer trained doctors, nurses, PAs, anesthetists, the whole range of caregivers who are prepared to provide services to people in need. So now I'm sitting here wondering about the future state of healthcare education in our country more generally. The pandemic has already torn through the medical and medical education communities, with rampant burnout, resignations and retirements reported in the news, additional challenges to securing clinical sites, and at least here in Wisconsin, a pretty significant backlog at the state level to clear nursing students for their licensure exams. On top of everything the pandemic intensified, Institutions now also have to consider the friction between the Dobbs decision, its local implications, and educational standards. They'll have to consider how that friction will affect the quality of the training they provide and how changes to their educational offerings and their curriculum might affect future admission cycles. I can easily see a future where some med schools are flooded with applicants and others struggle to fill their classes. Being a dean is never an easy job, But this seems like a really tough time to be the Dean of a medical school. I also don't think it's an easy time to be a college president. And it's probably never been easy to lead a state institution that requires ongoing engagement with the legislature. So I turn to those institutional statements with a lot of sympathy as well. At the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the interim chancellor issued a statement, which, by the way, shout out to UW, is offered in summary in six languages acknowledging the wide range of feelings evoked by the decision. At the same time, the chancellor's stance is fairly neutral. The university will continue to follow the law while seeking full understanding of its implications for patient care, medical training, and caring for the campus community. He leaves it unspoken how they plan to reconcile those opposing positions. Beyond the chancellor is an organization called Profs, which is a voluntary nonprofit organization of UW-Madison faculty. Profs' statement is more specific. They address the difficulty of maintaining accreditation for the med school, the potential challenges in attracting and retaining students and employees if Wisconsin's prohibitive 19th century statute stands, and the disproportionate suffering the Dobbs decision will impose on women of color and those in low income and rural communities. Profs also calls for clear action, including legislation that would protect pregnant people at the state and federal levels. The statements posted at the University of Utah are a stark contrast to the institutional positions at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which honestly surprised me. And let me be totally transparent here as well. I have a ton of baggage about Utah. I was born there. I lived there on and off as a kid. It's where I went to high school, and nearly everyone on one side of my family lives there. I've been both baptized in and disfellowshipped by the Mormon Church. My feelings about Utah run deep and are almost always ambivalent. It's fair to say that I turn a pretty wary eye on most things in the beehive state. That said, I really did love my time as a student at the U. The University of Utah organizes their statement into three sections. The first is a short and simple reminder that the university is a state entity and therefore follows state and federal laws, which will now include what is commonly called Utah's trigger law, although that's currently on hold pending resolution of a lawsuit from Planned Parenthood and the ACLU of Utah. The second section shifts to a description of the university's role in public debate. In this section, the university explicitly defends academic freedom and freedom of speech for students, faculty, and staff, while noting that in general, people speak for themselves, and only designated spokespeople speak on behalf of the institution. And they go further, writing that the university has a responsibility to speak and educate the community about issues that impact our campus community without directly engaging in political disagreements. Pregnancy termination is an issue of health care for our students, employees, and patients. It is the subject of research for our faculty, and it is a matter of patient care for our hospitals and clinic staff and faculty. The third section, called Support for Those in Our Community, demonstrates deep respect for pregnant people's needs and choices, as well as a commitment to clinicians' oaths and standards of ethical practice. It ends by directing readers to resources on campus that can support those who are, quote, managing the impact of this decision. The page ends with a list of FAQs, which are direct, honest, and clear. Now, even though I know next to nothing about how the University of Utah's leadership team operates, this page impresses me and gives me hope. It demonstrates a compassionate approach to the university's responsibility to all Utahns to encourage civic activity, communal thinking and debate, and shared decision making. It manages to be honest and sensitive while operating within its parameters as a state entity. I gotta give props to the communications team who developed this page, and also to the hearts and minds of the people who promote the sentiment behind the words. The statement doesn't say everything I would hope for as a woman who believes in women's rights. But it does say a lot of good things, and frankly, it says more than I expected it to. And it also highlights the glaring absence of something at UW-Madison. Madison Madison never mentions the Wisconsin idea, the principle that education should influence people's lives beyond the boundaries of the classroom. I mean, it's kind of like the foundation of the whole thing, and nobody mentions it. Anyway, there's another piece of the picture that surprises me at Utah. About six years ago, they launched a new school. It's formally called the School for Cultural and Social Transformation, but on campus they just call it Transform. Transform is the academic home to disability studies, ethnic studies, gender studies, and Pacific Islander studies. Decades ago, the woman who is now its dean, but was then a freshly minted PhD teaching English literature, her name is Catherine Bond Stockton, taught my undergraduate self how to fall in love with the emotional and bodily pleasures of reading As a professor, she made very real for us the ways that being an intellectual feels good in your body, and she brings that same energy to her work as a dean. I'm sure there are amazing schools like Transform around the country, but given what I know of and feel about Utah, well, I think this school is something of a miracle. I'm going to drop a link in the show notes to a welcome speech Catherine recently gave to an incoming class, a speech which is striking for its radical candor and big-heartedness. It's a short YouTube video, and if you're interested in how leaders talk about meaningful intersectional issues with love and passion, I think you'll find it's a good way to spend six minutes. Anyway, so now when I think of the U, I still picture an imposing university nestled in the foothills of the capital of a very conservative state, but I picture it as willing to take on the work of caring not just for the minds, but also for the bodies. Remember? Disability studies, ethnic studies, gender studies, Pacific Islander studies, the minds and bodies of its entire community. So Utah. Wow. It just, just wow. And all of this hard fangirling brings me to the University of Washington, and particularly its president, Anamari Kausei. I graduated from UW in 1994, at which point Anamari was already on campus as a professor, although sadly, I never found my way to her classroom. But I've watched her leadership development in the intervening years with interest, partly because she's one of the few women I know who started their career somewhere as a faculty member and stayed at the same place until becoming president. Her career path is amazing. But what I love about Anamari most is that, like Katherine Stockton at the U, she doesn't just get promoted, right? Like she's not just checking boxes. She says things in writing and out loud that come from her heart. Her leadership is a living testament to her values. You can see this in her presidential blog, which is a series of posts embodying inclusion, fighting for justice, showing gratitude, and more. I'll drop a link to that blog in the show notes, too. I mean, I know I'm biased, but I don't think you have to be an alum to find her work energizing and uplifting. Like the University of Utah and UW-Madison, UW's med school quickly responded to the high court's decision on abortion with a position that merged legal requirements, medical training responsibilities, and state law. As president, though, Anamari took the uniquely bold step of saying some stuff out loud. She calls the Dobbs decision, and I quote here, profoundly distressing and concerning for many members of our community, including myself. And she notes that it raises equally troubling concerns about what this may mean for other human rights that we believed were established and inviolable. She goes on to applaud the new multi-state commitment to abortion access being acted by Governors Jay Inslee, Kate Brown, and Gavin Newsom, and closes by sharing her conviction that progress toward freedom, equality, and universal human rights will take work by all of us, but I'm confident we are equal to the challenge. You know, I get a little verklempt there. So, you know, it's not surprising at all that these three institutions have really different responses to Dobbs because they are all uniquely contextualized by their state's political positions. It's not surprising to see caution in Wisconsin and anger and a fight for justice in Washington. I know it's early days, even counting the seven weeks lead time we had when the decision was first leaked in early May. And I know it takes time to determine an institutional approach to managing a crisis. I mean, we've all just had repeated crash course in that lesson. Still, I find myself reading these statements and yearning for them to be clear and direct about what will happen to students on the campus. I'm thinking in particular about the potential traumas faced by pregnant students who are not pregnant by choice. There's, you know, like the practical stuff during pregnancy. They might need larger desks to accommodate their changing bodies, or time away from class for doctor's appointments, or medical accommodations if they're put on bed rest. And there's the basic post pregnancy practical stuff like childcare, time away from classes to spend with preemies in the NICU, a place to breastfeed or pump, diaper changing stations, family restrooms, all that kind of stuff. And then there's the relatively easy or, I don't know, somewhat straightforward emotional stuff that can come with all of that dealing with being pregnant on a college campus, wondering what kind of judgy thoughts people are having about you having to miss out on any number of social events that aren't conducive with pregnancy and parenting newborns. All of this will be plenty hard for the pregnant student and for the entire campus community. I've worked at women's colleges where it's not surprising to see students as mothers and students as caretakers, but on most co-ed campuses with a large student body of traditional college-age students, this will all be radically different. And as much as I worry about all that, And I do worry. I mean, it took me six years to finish college and I never got pregnant, let alone had a child. And given that I worked full time in order to pay my way through college, I doubt I would have finished if I'd become a mother. Anyway, as much as I worry about all that, I worry even more about the terrors and traumas associated with forced pregnancies. I worry about the impregnated rape victim who is suffering through an interminable Title IX process while their rapist walks freely around campus, and who may very well sue for custody once the child is born. I worry about the mental health and the physical safety of the woman who was slut-shamed for her pregnancy. I worry about the grieving parent whose child dies in utero, or the grieving spouses, friends, partners, and family members who suffer the double loss of a difficult stillbirth that also took the mother's life. I worry about the new parents suffering from postpartum anxiety or postpartum depression, who then considers taking their own life. And how long will it take? One year, three, five, until the impact of all those people who are crushed under the oppressive weight of being forced into parenting, who indefinitely extend or totally give up their college education? How long will it take until not just our economy tanks, but our social fabric dissolves? This may sound melodramatic, but it's not. We know what this looks like, because for hundreds of years, our country has been punishing people in exactly these ways. Women with black and brown skin, immigrant women, queer women, women from all historically excluded categories. In 2017, in an opinion piece written for McLean's, Milena Williams writes about the blind spot of white women who were freaking out about The Handmaid's Tale. You probably remember this. She reminded us that for hundreds of years in the US, black women found themselves captive bred against their will, and tortured and even killed for attempting to escape. In that America, it was nearly impossible for a black woman to be born, live, and die of old age under a social system that deemed neither her body nor the fruit of her womb to be her own. So Malena's talking about history, about teachable facts, which prompted me to see the opportunity to address this terrible moment through education, Now, I'm not advocating for indoctrinating or radicalized students. We all know college campuses don't do that. Nor am I talking about forcing college campuses to take pro-choice positions that are out of step with their missions. But regardless of our missions, all of us share something in common, a commitment to education. Freire reminds us that there's no such thing as neutral education. Education functions as an instrument to bring about either conformity or freedom, Those of us who are passionate about education are, by definition, passionate about freedom. The task before us now, as we lead our institutions in this difficult moment, is to insist upon education as liberation, and to design our responses as ways that support, educate, and liberate all of our students, including those who dissent, until none of them are suffering. So this is an obvious time to draw upon the liberal arts, to teach students to see the intersections of democracy and economics and psychology and anatomy and mental wellness and history and human compassion. The ways we educate now must ensure that our privileged students are equipped and also caring enough to fight for the rights and well being of their classmates, both those who are among the historically excluded and those who are newly excluded. On June 24th, 2022, the day of the Dobbs versus Jackson decision, Inside Higher Ed published a news story with the title, Is it a university's duty to protect students from harm? I'm not going to answer that question as either an attorney or a college spokesperson because I am neither. I do, however, side with figures like Ferrari and Bell Hooks, and I believe it's impossible to care for someone's mind if you're not also caring for their bodily well being. There are many, many ways to protect students from harm. The one we all have in common is education. Education that prepares our students to care about, to care for, and to liberate one another. The Dobbs decision venerates and enshrines oppression by eliminating liberty for women and Clarence Thomas has told us he's coming for a whole host of our other liberties as well. As hard as it is to read I've also put a link to his concurrence as well as some commentary about it in the show notes as well. I am exhausted by all of this and also I'm freaking ready for a righteous fight. I go into that fight carrying in my heart Auden's words on the eve of World War II. We must love one another or die. <music>